Good morning, LifePoint Church. Great to be together today. Great to worship together, to hang out together. And whether we're here in person or online, we welcome our online viewers as well with our live stream, which continues to grow, and our, our YouTube views and Vimeo views as well. Super excited about that. And we just want to wish you and your family an awesome, awesome Easter. And and uh, I've talked to a number of you, and we've gotten some feedback from you about the continuing impact of our in-person and our online services, so we're so glad we can do that in, in two different ways. And, and uh, in terms of in-person, super excited to see you today, to be together. Our first service was pretty full, and we're filling up. More people are getting the vaccine. More people feeling more comfortable. Hopefully, continue to get that momentum. Uh, we still got a lot of people who are kind of trying to figure this out, and we respect that. We know this is a journey, a tough thing for us to figure out, but love the energy that we have here when we're together. And we're just getting started. I mean, we went from three services, very full, high impact, a lot of stuff happening, a lot of energy, and then all of a sudden, you know, well, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. Many of you have said that uh, coming here has really lifted you uh, in terms of energy and, and encouragement, and we're glad for that. We want this place to, to be that kind of place, not because of a new auditorium, but because we gather and God is here. Jesus is here. He says where two or three are gathered, and he inhabits the praises of his people. So really look forward to uh, continuing to grow our in-person service and uh, the energy and encouragement we give to each other. Also online, super excited about you joining us today as well and seeing that grow. Uh, many of you are watching in your living rooms or your kitchens. Maybe you're you're watching in your car, but hopefully not driving at the same time, uh, maybe later in the week or something. But we're glad you're here as well, and you're worshiping with us too. And so we're worshiping in different places, and uh, we get to do that together, and that's very cool. So happy Easter to everybody. And I can't help but think back to a year ago uh, from this season when on March 15th, for the first time that I can ever remember being in ministry a long time, uh, actually having to cancel services in, indefinitely. And the pandemic had hit, and, you know, the 15 days to stop the spread. You remember that? Remember 15 days? Like, what happened with that? And all of a sudden, it was like way, way more than that. And it was a scary time, a very scary time, because we didn't know how dangerous this virus was, like how many people was it going to kill? What was the death rate on this thing? How is it transmitted? We've evolved a lot on that, trying to figure that out. And, and we just didn't know uh, how it would affect our lives, our health, our loved ones, our families. And, and it was a really brutal, brutal time. And we kind of worked our way through that uh, and pivoted. The next week, we, we started online services. And then two weeks after that, we were supposed to have our grand opening in this building. We're actually supposed to meet in here, and it was going to be a great celebration, a great time together, and, and that didn't happen either, and it was really disappointing. And then two weeks after that was Easter, and I remember standing on this stage on Easter a year ago, 2020, looking at a camera lens and talking into a camera lens, and and uh, I'm not like a TV, like evangelist type of guy. That's really not my thing. I'm a local church pastor type of guy. I would rather be together. I love being with you. I love hanging out together. I love talking, catching up, and interacting. I'm encouraged by you. I want to be an encouragement to you. And now I'm, 
I'm talking to a camera lens, and you're like, wow, what in the world's going on? This is really not what we envisioned. And yet, at the same time, God used that in a really big way. We look back now and see that over 2,000 people last Easter uh, joined us for services, and that our impact was far and wide, and you watched, and you asked friends and family to watch as well, and it was very cool how God works. But in the midst of all these things, it's, if there's one word that kind of describes this last season, this last year, 2020, even till this day, it's the word disruption. Our world has been seriously disrupted. Plans have been canceled, weddings rescheduled, work life reconfigured. We've got all kinds of things with school schedules that are not the same. Our routines have been completely trashed. And we look at this and say, boy, this is tough. This is challenging. And one of the worst things of all was the isolation. The fact that we couldn't be with friends and family like we once were, that we weren't sure if we could hang out with our mom who maybe is older, or our dad who is older, or our kids, that we weren't sure how this worked. We couldn't get together as a church family, and that was really rough. It was hard on our family for a lot of reasons, one of which was our son David. Our son David lives at Paxton Home, which is in Harrisburg. It's a group home with about 80-plus residents, and, and we have not been able to see him uh, for months and months. In fact, over the last 14 months, we've seen him two times. And we saw him at Thanksgiving, and we saw him at Christmas, but it was via Zoom. And we're super happy that there's technology. That was a good thing, but it wasn't the same. It was, it was hard not having him there. And now as we're kind of working through this, we saw him uh, last week. We got a chance to, to hang out with him for the first time in many, many months. And, and this time we could actually be together and I could hug the kid. And he got this buzz cut that required some like serious like hand like rubbing on the head. Because it just, that's what dads do. You get the buzz cut, you're going to do the rubbing of the head thing. Like it's an egg type thing. And he's like, dad, dad, dad. And of course, I got to tell him the dad jokes like, if you're a dad and you're getting older, you know how the jokes go. The kids are like, nah, not, not, not really working. My dad jokes 100% work on him. He laughs every time. It's like, I need you. I need you because you laugh at my jokes. The other kids are like, nah, not so sure, sure about those. But it was very cool that we could do that, and it was a reminder of how, how difficult all of this has been over the last months and years. And it almost feels like we had a plan and we had a direction and we had something in mind for, for the year. And then we're standing and it's like the rug of circumstances gets pulled right out from under us. And like we've lost our way. We're falling headlong in the air. We've, our equilibrium is off. Our balance is off. And we're just searching for somehow that our feet can land on some solid ground that we can kind of get ourselves situated once again. It's tough. It's hard. It's been so, so disruptive. But it's interesting to go back 2,000 years ago and to look at another point in time, a season of disruption for the disciples. Because there was a period of time in their life where things weren't going well at all. In, th in fact, their world was utterly falling apart before their eyes. 
You see, the disciples had decided that they were going to follow Jesus, that there was something unique about him. There was something uh, anointed about his words, and they were curious about it. And, And one day, Jesus called to them and said, I want you to follow me. And they did. They followed Jesus. And not just for a month or two months or six months, but but for three years, they continued to follow Jesus. And, and they did that because, again, there was something amazing about him. And they gave up a lot to make it happen. They left their jobs. They just left their jobs. And, and they left their social network. And they didn't have the same interactions with the same people that they once did. They, they embarked on this itinerant Ministry, moving from place to place, following Jesus, because there was something about him that intrigued them, they wondered about, and they followed this unique and special man. But their understanding of Jesus began to evolve over time. It began to change. His words were personally transformational. And they had very good reasons to follow Jesus. They had really good reasons to believe in him. Soon after they followed Jesus and decided, hey, we're going to uproot a little bit, we're going to follow him and, and do what he does, Jesus began to do very amazing things, and one thing threw them for a loop. It happened one day, and it's described in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus got into a boat, and they never saw, they never anticipated what was about to happen. We read this story in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. This is the other side of of the Sea of Galilee, a large body of water. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man that even the wind and even the waves obey him? You see, the disciples were intimately familiar with the dangers on on the Sea of Galilee. Its topography was set up in such a way that it had mountains surrounding it that enabled channels of wind to enter the water, and the, the surface of the water would be churned up quickly. As fishermen, they knew they needed to check things out really carefully because people die on that body of water. And now a furious squall has come up. Jesus is sleeping through it, and they're like, wow, does this man even care? This is crazy. He's the one who told us to get in the boat. Why did, did he not check the weather? Did he not, he, he's not thinking about this stuff. But he had something he wanted to teach them. Because suddenly he gets up, and he speaks to the storm, and it's calmed. 
It's almost like when you have a, a birthday party or a wedding or something, it's like the weather comes. Wouldn't you want someone like that? It's like, listen, I know it's raining. Boom! It's like, oh, it's sunny. Fantastic. They'd never seen anything like this. No man, no human being should have this kind of power. I mean, imagine seeing a human being controlling rain and wind and the weather. Who is this man? He's not what we thought. He's much, much more. The disciples had good reasons to believe in Jesus. And so they kept following him, and Jesus continued to do mighty works and miracles. But then one day something happened that was even beyond the scope of Jesus' ability to deal with it. He was walking along in a crowd, and at that point he had gathered a big crowd of people. A lot of people were following him. They were intrigued. They were curious. And they were following one day, and this man named Jairus came up to him. Jairus was a synagogue ruler, a leader. He was a man of, of great uh, integrity. He was a man who had position and power. He, was pro he had prominence. But he was basically in a situation where his family was dealing with trauma. A crisis had ensued. His daughter was sick. And so he saw Jesus and he ran up to him and he fell on the ground. And, and he says he pleaded earnestly with Jesus to, to come and, and see his daughter because he had heard things about Jesus and possibly seen things as well. That Jesus had this power to heal people and, and his daughter was sick and so he loved her so much. And, and even though others were scorning him for this, other religious leaders looked down on him for this. You know, what kind of synagogue ruler are you? The, the Pharisees hated Jesus. They hated his words, hated that he healed people. They were jealous of the following that he now had. And, and so Jairus takes all this in and he doesn't care. He just wants his daughter healed. And so Jesus decides that he's going to go to their house and look at the situation. But then as they're on their way, they get some horrible news, the worst possible news, that his daughter has died. And as parents, they're devastated. So imagine being there, observing the scene, Seeing this man of, of great status come and fall in his face, like eat the dirt right before Jesus. Like, man, Jesus, I know you've got power and I don't care. I'm going to humble myself and say, God, could you do something? Jesus, could you do something? And Jesus agrees to it. And yet the worst possible thing has happened. And now this circumstance is way bigger than anything they've ever seen. It is impossible. The situation is irreversible. It's tragic. There's nothing that even Jesus now can do. So everyone thinks. The disciples could never have anticipated what happened next. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? There's nothing he can do. Ignoring what they say, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying. They were weeping loudly and wailing. 
he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Don't be afraid. The child is sleeping? Seriously? Talk about being cruel. Talk about saying words to grieving parents. They just, it's delusion. It's craziness. These things should not be said. To give such false hope, to misrepresent the situation, was beyond the scope of what anybody thought that Jesus would do. It just seemed mean. It just seemed wrong. In fact, professional mourners had already shown up on the scene. In Jewish culture, when someone died, professional mourners would come in, and they would cry and weep and wail and scream for your loved one. So in other words, you, you cry too, but you get other people in there too, because the more people, the bigger, you know, the understanding is in the culture and the community that, wow, we've lost someone we love so much. In this case, it wasn't just a bad situation, the loss of a loved one. It was the loss of a 12-year-old girl, a girl who had her whole life in front of her, a girl who wasn't breathing anymore, whose heart stopped beating. These mourners were professionals. They've seen it many times before. They've been to plenty of these type of events. This girl was certifiably dead. And Jesus here incurs some mockery. They laugh at him. They scorn at him. And they do that because he uses the word that Jesus sleep. It's a metaphor in the Bible for death. And skeptics and haters and mockers knew beyond a doubt that she was dead. But they did not know that Jesus was about to seriously impact his reputation beyond the scope of anything they ever imagined. In verse 40, it says, and they laughed at him. He put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Imagine being in that moment. Imagine being a fly on the wall and seeing that happen. Hearing Jesus' words, seeing his power demonstrated in a way that was unprecedented, unexpected. No one had ever seen anything like this before. And not only did he have power, but over time he started to make claims, outrageous claims, super absurd, like crazy man claims, to say that he was, well, God. He'd say things like, I and the Father are one, equating himself with God the Father. Something that was blasphemous, no one would dare do that. Jesus started calling himself the I am, the I am. He kept saying, I am, I am, which was a reference to the Old Testament where God was revealed as the great I am, the I am that I am, Yahweh himself. He's claiming to be God. He's also there and he forgives people's sins and you don't do that. You can do, you can't forgive other people's sins for other people. It's like God is the only one who does that. We even see later that he accepts worship, the ultimate blasphemy that a human being would do such a thing. 
And so Jesus makes these claims and he's doing these things and Jesus is acting like God. Jesus had the power of God. He's making the claims to be God. Way more than a good teacher. Way more than a moral philosopher. Way more than somebody who's just God conscious. Like he's just a good dude. He's just a fantastic dude. Like really moral and his teaching's really cool. The Sermon on the Mount. It's like wow. Amazing literary stuff. Way more than any of those things. He's claiming to be the Messiah. The Savior of the world. The Son of God. God in the flesh. And it was blowing people's minds. And as the understanding of who Jesus was evolved in the disciples' mind, so did the hope they placed in him. The hope they placed in him got bigger and bigger and bigger. They had hope that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would use his power to save them, to deliver them, to be their deliverers. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one that, that would take the yoke of Roman oppression off of their backs. That Jesus would be the one who would come along and, and remove the, the political elite of the time and, and take them out and usher in a new kingdom, a new age of righteousness where God's people of the past who screwed up royally, who messed up badly, who, who constantly rejected and turned from God, were people that were loved by God, but many pursued in him and stayed on course, and they would be vindicated for their faith. Oh, God, you're coming to set up your kingdom. And they put their hope in him. He was no mere man. But all this promise, all these hopes, all these dreams, everything was utterly destroyed, decimated one day when the unthinkable happened, when Jesus, with all this power, died on the cross. They were counting on him. They hoped in him. They believed in him. They were following him. And just when they needed him most, the man dies. And here's the deal. Dead messiahs don't do us any good. You can have all this power in the past, but that doesn't help us right now. We need a deliverer now, and we were counting on you. And now you failed us at the worst time possible. How could this happen? How could this be? Jesus, you were not supposed to die. And the irony was so great the, con the contradiction so striking that people actually mocked Jesus on the cross by saying this, that you saved others, but you could not even save yourself. They mocked him. Said, you got all this power. Fantastic. You saved others, but here's the deal. You don't even have enough power to save yourself. So imagine that moment, the screaming, searing agony in Peter's mind, and James's mind, and Matthew's mind, and Thaddeus's mind, and it's like, this can't be. A deliverer who is dead, I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. But the whole thing, it's over. And their lives spun 
into this horrible downward spiral. The disciples were in this tailspin. All these questions now unanswered. They've been duped. They've been fooled. And these are hard scrabble guys. These aren't gullible guys. These are guys that on the street. These are fishermen. They, they know a fraud. They know when something's off. And it's like it didn't make sense because all the evidence pointed in the direction that what we were following, what we believed, the man we believed in is true. And now we realize he's been a fraud. All the miracles, all the mighty acts, all the mesmerizing moments, all the powerful retorts of an uneducated man against these educated religious leaders who kept coming at him, coming at him, but he was more knowledgeable of scripture than anybody else and he didn't even go to school. All that meant nothing now because he was dead. And so what did they do? They cowered in corners. They slipped away into the shadows. Every one of them ran away. They denied knowing Jesus. They didn't want to be associated with him anymore. It's like, we've been tricked. We've been fooled. I can't believe how this happened, but I can't make sense of it. But dead messiahs do us no good. And so, let's just move on. Maybe I'll close my eyes and this nightmare will go away. Maybe someday I'll wake up and I can get my life back. Maybe I can slink back to my old job and no one will ask me any questions. I don't know. But I'm afraid that if I'm associated with this dead Messiah, that maybe Rome will come for me and kill me as well. And it was devastating, disappointing. They were horribly, horribly embarrassed. It was life seriously, seriously disrupted. Many of us go through moments of disruption too. Not just because of a pandemic, not because of, just because of all we've done and had to go through the last year, but sometimes our dreams, they don't come to pass. Sometimes we make plans and they get crushed. Sometimes our hopes are unrealized, our desires are unfulfilled, and, and it's, it's disorienting, it hurts. It's like we've stepped on this rug and, and circumstances have pulled that out from us and we're like, we're like falling headlong ourselves and we can't get our way, make our way, we can't find our footing and it's painful, it hurts so much. We feel stuck in a bad situation. We feel stuck in a disappointing life and we don't know how to make our way out of it. But there was more to this story and there's also more to your story too because three days after Jesus' death three women decided that they were going to pay their respects to Jesus and they were bringing spices and perfumes to complete the burial process for Jesus out of respect for recognition for this man who is now dead and they went to the tomb, and it's described for us in Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, 
Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now, there are a lot of absurd things that you've probably heard people say to you over the years. And there are things in the Bible that seem absurd too, and this has certainly got to be at the, near the top of the list. One of the most absurd things said in Scripture are, why do you look for the living among the dead? What? Wait? What? The women probably heard that and think, wait, what? No. No, we're not looking for the living among the dead. We're actually in the graveyard because we're looking for the dead among the dead. And that's why we have the spices and that's why we have this perfume because we're going to complete this burial process for Jesus. But it wasn't just anyone saying that to them. It was these two like glimmering guys, like angel-like people or something. And and they talked about Jesus and that he wasn't there. And they said some other things too. And it was so crazy. It was so unreal. And the women were so confused by this and amazed by this and terrified by this. They decided they're going to run. So they go off and run. And they're going to go tell the other disciples. They're going to tell them what they just heard and experienced. But when they told them, it didn't go so well. Verse 9, it says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words to them, serious nonsense, nonsense. They told the story to the disciples. They're like, yeah, we, we had the spices and stuff, and we went to the garden, and we were in there, and, and all of a sudden, there were these two glimmering guys, and they're like, two glimmering guys? Yeah, they're, they're up there, like glimmering, like shining. They're shining. Like angels? Yeah, maybe like angels or something, but glimmering. Yeah, and, and they started to talk to us, and well, what did they say? They said, well, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Well, did you tell them that we're, you're not looking for the living among the dead? You're looking for the dead among the dead, and they're like, no, we didn't tell them that, but oh, okay. So anyway, the glimmering guys kept talking, and they said, that Jesus was raised from the dead and, and that he told us it would happen and, and they're like, listen, come on. Seriously. All that we've gone through, the horror of seeing Jesus killed, none of us saw that coming. We just didn't believe it would ever happen. And now the agony, the torment, and the trauma of the last three days when all of us ran away we cowered in the midst of this. We denied him. We rejected him. And now you're telling us these glimmering guys are coming along and are going to fix all that. We're just going to believe that this is all fixed now because you heard some maybe angels or whatever they were, weird gardeners and weird garb. We don't even know. No, your story, it doesn't even add up. We don't believe it. Verse 11 says it clearly. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them nonsense. Nonsense in the Greek speaks of idle talk. It's actually a medical term too for 
for delirium and hysteria. In other words, a doctor would come along and say, listen, you've been through a lot of stress. Like, like, your stress levels are really high. So it's kind of like a delirium thing, a hysteria thing. We could cut you some slack here that you would actually believe this craziness because, you know, this has been a very rough time. But this report, it's not credible. We're 100% not buying it. And you've probably heard the old phrase, and I think it was 100% true for them, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I'm not falling a second time. I'm done with that. I got fooled the first time. It's not going to happen again. I'm not getting duped. That's it. Let's all go home and start our lives over. But there was this one phrase that Peter could not shake. This one phrase that was stated here, five words that really started to penetrate his heart. The others kind of heard it and thought about it a little bit, but Peter analyzed it. And he didn't know what to do with it. It was the words, remember how he told you. Huh. Remember how he told. I mean, Jesus said a lot of things. He talked about a lot of things, and I didn't even understand the man many times, but he kept talking, and he said things, and then they happened. It's like, remember when he told you, yes, actually, um, I do remember. I forgot. Actually, we all forgot. It didn't make sense at the time. It seemed absurd. There were other more important things to, to retain, but yes, actually, he did tell us that he would die and that he would rise again. And that immediately triggered Peter to start running. He's running now. The women were running, now Peter's running. But Peter's running back to the tomb. And this is what occurred. It says in verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. He still didn't make sense of it, but the tomb was now empty. His hopes grew just a little bit, but he was super skeptical and cautious because he didn't know what was going on. Like, where are the Romans? They had set a guard around the tomb. They had, they had put uh, an, uh, an armed group of people around the tomb. They had sealed the tomb so that no one could enter this tomb except by penalty of death. And these soldiers were devoted to their post because if they were to ever leave their post, they would be executed like the one entombed inside. So they weren't leaving, but they weren't there. What in the world? What's going on? Maybe those glimmering guys had something to do with this. Maybe the angels had something. Maybe there's, God is doing something that we never saw coming. And he wondered about it. He asked questions. But to believe that Jesus was truly risen was going to take much more than an empty tomb. An empty tomb requires explanation. And God knew exactly what they needed to believe. Jesus gave them much more than just an empty tomb. We read about that in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
They were startled and frightened, thinking that this is a ghost. Oh, no, it's happening again. This is our mind. What's going on? They thought he was a ghost, but he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and look at my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here we have evidence that is overwhelming, that God comes to them and knows exactly what they need to believe. And the empty tomb was critical. It was pivotal to this whole narrative, to, to what God was doing and what God planned to do and predicted and prophesied that he would do. But he needed to appear to them, and that's exactly what they did. And in the end, finally, it happened. It took a while. Skepticism ran deep. But it says to us at the end of this story, after seeing him multiple times, finally they did it. They bowed down and they worshiped the resurrected Christ. 2,000 years ago, God used a moment of serious disruption to work powerfully in the disciples' lives. And God wants to do the same thing in your life today. And so this morning, maybe you're dealing with some kind of disruption. Maybe a friendship that's been fractured or a relationship that's, that's just falling apart, a marriage that is strained. Maybe you're dealing with a health concern, a health crisis, and it's like you're not getting any answers and it doesn't seem like there's any hope or help and, and you're worried. Maybe you've done a deep, dug a deep financial hole and you've fallen into this. Like, I, I can't see my way out of this. Maybe you look at your future and you're like, I don't th think my dreams are going to come to pass. I, I feel like my hopes are dashed and, and maybe my life is just doomed to be a failure. Everything seems to be falling apart. Everything seems to be crashing down on me and I don't know how to regain my equilibrium when the rug's been pulled out from underneath me. But if there's anything we learn, it's this, that Easter is that season where God promises that right in the middle of our disruption, right in the middle of our disappointments, right in the middle of our setbacks, and when our dreams come crashing down, that God is there. Easter reminds us that God knows exactly what's going on in our lives, knows exactly the circumstances we face. God knows exactly what we're longing for and not receiving. He knows how life sometimes feels like we're stuck stuck in our brokenness, stuck in our failures, stuck in the past. God knows how we feel. And we also know he's with us, that God loves us. He has a plan for our lives, and he wants to bring us out of that muck and that mire and that brokenness and that pain, and that he is in control, that God is in control of our lives. God is in control of our world. Sometimes we wonder about that today with all the craziness in our world. God is in control of our world. God is in, in control of our future. All these things are not beyond the scope of God's power. And more than anything else, this season, God wants you to respond with the hope that he alone can offer. The hope that he uniquely offers to you and me that no one else can offer. No spiritual guru, no other religion, no other faith, no other self-help person, whoever it might be. No new technology, no medical breakthrough. These give us hope, 
But there is no capital H hope apart from what Jesus himself offers. And he wants us to respond to that hope. God wants you, more than anything else, to trust him, to turn to him, to lean into him, and to believe in him in your seasons of disruption. More than anything else this season, God doesn't just want to be a warm-hearted Easter story for you. God doesn't want to just be a story that is accompanied by eggs and bunnies, whatever that has to do with it, who knows. But God wants to be way more than any of those things. He wants you to lean into him, to trust him, to turn to him, to know that he loves you and has a plan for your life. And so no matter what you're going through today, God is working. God is active. God has a recovery plan in mind for your life, and he's working right now to bring you to a very different place, a better place than you've ever, ever imagined, if you will trust him. Even death itself is doomed. Even death itself loses its battle. Even death itself must bow at the feet of the resurrected Christ. And so you see, the one who saved others actually did save himself. And all of us now, too, who trust in him. And one day, he'll make this great exchange. And our days of disruption will be exchanged for an eternity of unending joy. Let's pray together.